Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Sir Simon Baron-Cohen. Simon is a clinical psychologist and a professor of developmental psychopathology at the University of Cambridge. He is also the director of the university's Autism Research Centre and is a fellow of Trinity College. In 1985, Baron Cohen formulated the Mind Blindness Theory of Autism, the evidence for which he created and published in 1995. And then again in 1997, he formulated the seminal Fetal Sex Steroid Theory of Autism, the key test of which was published in 2015. So he has made some seminal and major contributions to the field of autism research. He's also the author of numerous books, the most recent of which being The Pattern Seekers, which I think is particularly relevant in the consideration of a potential interface between autism and the psychedelic renaissance in terms of the therapeutic applications of psychedelics. And he has also made major contributions to the fields of typical cognitive sex differences, autism prevalence and screening, autism genetics, autism neuroimaging, and various other major areas of interest. He was knighted in 2021 in the New Year's Honours list, so I think you'll agree he's a pretty impressive person to speak to when it comes to having a, like a decent primer conversation on the topic of autism. In terms of context for why I wanted to talk to him, I work uh, a lot with kids who are autistic and have complex needs, and uh, I am therefore privy to a lot of conversations in the autism community. And I have just heard, and obviously through the podcast, and I have just heard too many anecdotal reports of beneficial effects of this sort of judicious use of psychedelics uh, um, from coming from the autism community, both through my profession and then also through the podcast. And so I really thought it would be useful to add some context and have a, as I said, like a primer conversation, just more squarely about autism per se, and some of the sort of topics of discussion that are going on at the minute. And then hopefully in the future, this is a topic that we can delve more deeply into. And so if you have any suggestions for people who you think would be at that intersection and would be interesting to talk to, please feel free to contact me through the podcast. So as always, enjoy the conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Thank you very much uh, for joining me today, Simon. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, my my pleasure. I'm happy to uh, be part of it. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Well, um, I have been avidly reading your book, The Pattern Seekers, and as I was chatting to you off mic, um, autism is coming on the um, sort of in the purview of psychedelics and through some preliminary research, but I feel it's very important that listeners who maybe aren't very familiar with the topic speak from, speak to someone and hear from someone who's been, you know, very involved in the research over, over many decades. So I think, you know, you're one of the most seminal voices over the last few decades on this topic in both, a, you know, a research and I think a public science perspective. So um, yeah, I think it's really good to have a sort of, you know, 101 conversation first before I go off and delve into this uh, more deeply. Right. Um, before we get into your career, I would just, 
I've heard you speak a little bit about your first introduction to working with uh, uh, people with autism through your time at a at a very interesting school model in, in Barnet mm. where you were working. That's right. So I'd love to I'd love to hear a little bit about your you know initial experience and you know just what sort of like what age were you and you know what was what was there going on in your life at the time that you 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 know were were working in this environment. Uh, yeah, so um, this is back in the early 80s, I guess, uh, so a long time ago now, and uh, I just graduated, so I was in my early 20s, uh, and I went to work as a teacher in a small unit for autistic kids. It was a kind of uh, experimental school, um, partly because back in those days, uh, methods hadn't really been developed very far, so there was a kind of interest by the sort of radical head teacher, she's, she was called June Felton. She's retired now. Just to kind of experiment in a very, you know, open-minded way as to what might help autistic kids. So it was an unusual environment. Um, it was called Family Tree. So they welcomed the parents in um, and worked with them too. They had video cameras in every classroom so that they could record the interactions between kids and between the teachers and the kids to see what helped and what maybe didn't help. Uh, and in staff meetings were all about reviewing the video recordings at the end of each day. Um, and there were just six kids and six teachers, so it was one-to-one. So it was a great immersion for me. I worked there for a year full-time. Just getting to know these six kids in, in a lot of detail uh, and at the end of that year, I decided to go on and do a PhD. And uh, here I am, many decades later, still doing research <laughs> into autism. So that was um, sandwiched in between your undergrad and then your, you know, your postgrad and on through to your PhD. What did what did you do your undergrad in, Simon? Um, my undergrad was in Oxford University, and it mm. was a, a degree called Human Sciences, which was a mix of both social and biological sciences. So it kind of uh, gave students a lot of freedom to create their own um, sort of mix of, of disciplines that they wanted to study from genetics through to social science. Right. So there's quite a, quite a broad approach at an undergraduate level, which is interesting because as we become sort of hyper-specialized in our worlds, it often seems that people are shunted off to vocational subjects or you know very specialized fields before getting that sort of period in their early 20s to academically and then in your case you know sort of professionally explore yeah their interests prior to then choosing their postgraduate education it seems like that sort of you know that gave you some context as to where you wanted to focus your yeah, your, that's your right. Sort of academic it, interest. Yeah, no, the the human sciences degree. There are a few universities that offer it, uh, but it's. Um, I think it's a fantastic, sort of broad, uh, degree. Um, you know, I learned about social anthropology, but also biological anthropology, uh, human ecology, all kinds of things, uh, and it's really only at postgraduate level that I think you need to specialize. Um, and you know, in a PhD, that's really a training in uh, in very narrow specialism. Uh, I chose the psychology of autism. 
So it's directly related to your experience. I wonder, did you find, Simon, and, uh, you know, I, I find this area fascinating. I think it's really interesting to talk to researchers about their, you know, their sort of origin story mm. in the world of academics. But were your peers, you had had a fairly intensive experience working, you know, mm. in a very formative way with young people in a model which uh, was probably at the time, if it was in the early 80s, you know, really quite progressive. There's probably very few places in the country where there was anything remotely similar happening. Yeah. So it's quite a rarefied atmosphere. You were. Did, uh, did you notice any difference when you were studying your PhD? Did you have maybe a context about from an applied perspective that your peers just didn't have? I, I, I've got to think that that was really separated you from your, your fellow, you know, <laughs> PhD candidates. Um, no, it's interesting. Uh, so I would say that, uh, first of all, the the clinical context in the early 80s was that the only real um, treatment, if we could use that word, sure. or, or educational approach that was being tried with autistic kids was um, what we now call ABA. It's, it was behavioral learning. Um, and, you know, that had quite a bad reputation even back then because it used both reward and punishment to try to... Um, build appropriate behaviors in autistic kids who were not showing appropriate behavior. Um, I guess I was wanting to move right away from that behavioral approach to try and understand what's going on in the mind of an autistic person. And uh, that's that still uh, is a focus of my research today. But I sort of went from this very practical, sort of first-hand experience, if you like, working with kids and families into a university. It was UCL. Uh, I had the privilege of having a supervisor who was a cognitive psychologist. Uh, her name's Uta Frith. And she was very interested in what are the cognitive or the information processing strategies and differences in autistic people compared to a typical child. So, but I think you're right, you know, compared to my my peers, I'd come from a, a very applied uh, real world environment and my hypotheses came from real world experience. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we can, I will link, uh, I do quite sort of detailed show notes, Simon, so any of the sort of people that you mention mm. or, or various um you know, the various different uh, uh, models and things like mm. that I can link to. So yeah, um, yeah, great. there's obviously still a lot of discussion about ABA yeah. today and it's a, and it's an incredibly um, polarizing topic in the world of, of behavior support. Um, so yeah, I think if, if people are listening and, uh, you know, as I said, my audience is mostly interested in psychedelics, but you might sense a sort of there are third rails, which we will sort of have to be very careful at times in how we speak on these topics because uh, there are just a few areas that are in, you know, incredibly contentious mm. and, and one has to tread quite carefully and show a certain sensibility to topics. And I'm sure, sure we'll get into that. But before mm. we get into then the sort of crux of your career and all the way through to I want to talk to you about your, your latest book. Um, there's a bit of an aphorism, I suppose, in that we, you know, we study what we seek to understand. So prior to going to university, if you don't mind me asking, you know, was there a sort of fascination with this within 
within your 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 broader family context or you know is there is there an experience of neurodiversity mm. within your your family i'm just curious what what had piqued your interest at such a sort of an early age yeah no it's it's good that you ask about that because um i come from a family of five children five siblings um and uh, i'm second in the family but the child born after me my sister susie uh was born with um a condition called Sturge-Weber's syndrome, which is very rare. Um, it's, um, you know, in her case, it left her without language, pretty much, uh, in a wheelchair uh, with um, very limited uh, both physical skills and, um, if you like, psychological skills. So she needed 24-hour um, nursing. She had epilepsy too. Uh, she had to be fed and dressed, and so profound learning difficulties and uh, and and physical difficulties. But actually, despite all that, um, a really um, wonderful ability to connect emotionally with other people. Um, so you know, she would look at people's faces. She would, um, you know, she would smile. She would respond to other people's emotions. Uh, she would laugh, most importantly. She had a kind of love of kind of slapstick humor. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, being a young child growing up with a sibling who has disabilities, it kind of sensitizes you to the fact that not everyone sees the world in the same way. Not everyone experiences the world in the same way. And I'm sure, it, you know, she was a, a big influence in why I went into the field of, of disability research. Yeah, I think that, um, well, thank you very much for sharing that, that visceral, a sort of early years visceral understanding. It's not like really an intellectual understanding. Mm. It's a visceral understanding that there are, you know, very different ways to view, I suppose, interface with the world and, um, one isn't better than the other necessarily. I, um, if you'll allow me a very small anecdote, as you're talking about that, it reminded me of of something which has stayed with me, an experience I had when I was in, um, a really beautiful little town in in the, I think it's in the Pyrenees called Cotteret. It's in, it's from the Belle Epoque era. So, you know, the beautiful area, it's a gorgeous little Alpine town and it's on hot springs. So I remember sitting in a, in a, in this natural spring and, you know, in sort of synthetically blue skies, looking up at the Alps in a natural hot tub. You know, it's just post-Instagram stuff. Everything was going great. And I was just ruminating, Simon, ruminating, ruminating, living in, you know, a very sort of cognitively unskillful way. Mm-hmm. And it was sun- sunny. And I looked across and just, you know, a meter to my right was a younger chap and he was just letting the sun bathe his face. And he had trisomy 21 I think uh-huh. and I remember just thinking okay there is no correlation between IQ and wisdom as far as I can tell because he was enjoying the sunshine he was doing exactly what should have been done and I remember just I had a quite a visceral experience thinking he is interfacing with this environment in a much more skillful way than I am right now um, but if I put an IQ test in front of him he would probably struggle you know so i just think it's really bears repeating that exposure to working with 
being a sibling of or just generally being interested in the way that people who are inverted quotes disabled view the world is not something it's something to be genuinely considered so yeah i don't know it sounds like that was very formative for you uh yeah and just picking up on you know um the whole question about intelligence or iq tests Mm. and as you mentioned them you know that um i think it used to be the case that a great value was placed on intelligence and iq uh, as if, you know, if you have more intelligence, you are of more value in the world. And I hope what's changed uh, as part of the process of removing stigma and discrimination towards people with learning disabilities is just to recognise that every person has equal value. It doesn't It's not really about your level of intelligence or your IQ. Um, so I just kind of put that out there just because we know that uh, the field of learning disabilities has this uh, rather dark history uh, around eugenics, for example, um, particularly, you know, taken to an extreme uh, in the Holocaust where, you know, people with learning disabilities were um, were killed uh, just mm-hmm. to try to eliminate um, learning disabilities from the population as if they had less value than other people. And I, I, ho- I hope we've moved a long way away from that kind of discrimination. Yeah, and I think that's something which we'll get into. Um, I have had a look through, very, we will, this is you know for further in the conversation, but the, the nuanced understanding of why, you know, certain, there are certain areas of genetic interest and how we can really make very careful discussions about a delineate but you know how how history how we can put checks and balances in to you know ensure that nothing like that ever happens again so i think you know for people listening i'm I'm making assumptions but i think someone from you know a northern irish catholic heritage and someone with a surname baron cohen i don't think we need to be told (laughs) about you know discrimination and, and how that can um, that can play out subject to the political cycle absolutely but you know people are kind of more aware of um discrimination based on say religion or ethnicity uh maybe less aware of discrimination based on iq you know essentially and uh so it's just it, i think it's important to keep discussing it you know you mentioned someone with trisomy 21 uh or down syndrome and uh we you know again a very complex issue in terms of ethics but we do know that uh you know a lot of uh, of of pregnancies of, of babies with trisomy 21 result in termination. You know, so even today, very different era to the Holocaust or to uh, the Troubles or any, you know, that we, we, there is still a kind of attitude towards, in this case, people with Down syndrome, that maybe their lives are of less value. And I think all of this just needs to be discussed and debated Clearly, you know, clearly women should have the right to choose as to whether they continue with a pregnancy or not. But we do need to sort of examine our social attitudes. That's what I'm trying to say towards totally. people. Yeah. The, 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 um, the interplay between what we can do scientifically and what we can, you know, the oughts and the is, the, between culture and science is, is, is an ongoing dance, you know, and um, it's definitely something which, 
I hope to through this podcast with different topics. I think long form podcasts is in a more general way, and I'm sure you're you're finding this as, as someone in the field who's being interviewed quite a few times is the the the, the restrictions on the sort of televisual mediums to make you know everyone has to have a sound bite and it's very uh, polarizing and it's all about debate. It just doesn't really. It doesn't match the the map. Doesn't match the the territory of how complicated modern life is because these were sort of questions which were moot before because you couldn't screen for certain things, you know, in the past. So it was a sort of a moot issue. Whereas, like you say, it's almost like these the potential for discrimination has be, has become sublimated in certain ways. So it's never it's not going to be as overt as as the discrimination that we mentioned and as is you know the sort of horror horror horrible hallmark of the twentieth century. But we just need to be discussing these issues um, in a way where we're not demonising each other because nobody has all the answers. And I and I I agree with you that uh, what you're calling long form podcasts are a wonderful new genre uh, where we can have a conversation. You know, often across disciplines. You know, you're in the world of of psychedelics. I'm in uh, the world of autism research. But we can we can talk across these uh different um domains if you like but in a you know and 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 having a whole hour to do that is is a, a wonderful privilege yeah. really for i'm really looking forward to it yeah it's i really appreciate it and also i might just go off on little tangents but it's as we'll get to it's for the hyper systematizers out there who might spot patterns in the things that we're discussing which we <laughs> we maybe don't don't see uh, straight away so you I'd love to come back to your, you, you, you studied your PhD at UCL and did you work then, did you go straight into research or what was your sort of early career post-PhD post like? Uh, no, I, so, so after my PhD I went to do um, a training in clinical psychology uh, because I wanted to try and um, integrate research with, uh, with practice, if you like, um, in those days, clinical psychology was a master's, so it was a two-year uh, master's degree. These days, it's a, a doctorate, so I would have had to do like a second PhD. Um, but you know what that clinical training gave me was a kind of opportunity to step, sort of, or to see autism within a much wider context of psychiatric conditions and other neurodevelopmental disabilities. Um, and obviously, you know, some experience in talking to patients, um, in understanding what, you know, what goes on um, in someone's mind that might lead them to uh, different outcomes. Uh, but after my clinical training, uh, I went back into research and, and teaching and just doing very part-time clinical work. Right, and did you maintain a practice for a long time, or you know, whilst you were also researching, or did you shift more, you know, squarely back into the world of academia? Um, so, what I was trying to do in my research was to do um, basic research or basic science into the causes of autism, but also applied research into what is helpful. So, evaluating, for example, um, different screening measures for early detection of autism or evaluating different teaching methods or um, different interventions. So keeping that kind of balance between basic and applied research, and then alongside 
uh, I did do some clinical work um, towards the end of the nineties. I opened a clinic uh, here in Cambridge, where I live, uh, for the diagnosis of adults with what was called Asperger's syndrome, uh, because there wasn't a clinic for that, um, and it was charitably funded. Um, so I was involved in developing diagnostic methods for both men and women who suspected that they might have Asperger's. It's a, in those days, it was considered to be a subgroup on the autism spectrum. We no longer use the term Asperger's syndrome uh, in terms of formal diagnostic labels, if you like. Um, and that's partly because of the, the research which showed that Hans Asperger, the pediatrician whose name is given to that subgroup on the autism spectrum, collaborated with the Nazis, um, sending some children to euthanasia clinics. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a, a very, a very, uh, very dark part of human history. And he was no doubt a doctor who was doing his best. But the fact that he referred any kids at all to clinics that resulted in them being killed, I think just m made me and others in the field question whether we should be using his name as, you know, as a diagnostic term. So now, nowadays we just call it autism. Um, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Someone can be so far on the other side of history. <laughs> that, uh, you know, and this is again a contentious issue, but more generally to, to say, oh, do we judge people by, um, you know, today's standards? But I think in that instance, I would very much agree. Um, you know, I, I watched a recent documentary. I know this has sort of taken a bit of an unusual turn, but I, I watched a recent documentary about World War II, and I can't remember the name of the particular American general, but it was when once one of the Nazi camps had been liberated, he was so incensed that he made the local German town walk past the bodies. Right. And I think that's, you know, and they weren't allowed to look away to, to sort of that very deep guttural sense of incredulity that how could you put not possibly have known? And there's a sort of uh, willful ignorance that sometimes we can see with hindsight that people just, oh, I didn't you were circumambulating a deeper truth that you just didn't want to know because for whatever reason, obsequiousness, career, career, you know, ism, you know, just looking at, it's looking the other way. So I think it is totally fair enough. And I actually wasn't aware of that history, but um, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's not some sort of, you know, moral panic sanitizing of language. If that name is, is totally not yeah. to be used. Well, I think I think uh, the autism community is a bit divided on this one. Um, so, people who ended up with a diagnosis of Asperger syndrome in the late '90s through till it was really only 2018 when this uh, historical research came to light, showing that Hans Asperger had uh, had referred uh, kids with 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 autism uh, to euthanasia clinics. So, you know, over more than a 20-year period, many people got, got the diagnosis of Asperger's and it, it becomes kind of part of their identity. So many of them continue to use it. They'll say, I have Asperger's syndrome, you know. In terms of um, the diagnosis of adults, 
it would be great to, to sort of get your yeah. thoughts on diagnosis for autism because I think that has a sort of a general it's a substrate independent understanding about how I, if I think I'm to understand your previous podcast cor- correctly that it's diagnosis is only needed whenever someone feels that they're struggling in life so I just how, how do you think about the term diagnosis in relation to to autism um so I'm you know my my position is as you just phrased it which is that a diagnosis is still a medical uh process um you know you get a label um which is recognized by the medical um services and the the health services and the social care services and the label itself the diagnosis is your passport to getting support so it's kind of recognizing disability in this case um some people would say well actually a diagnosis could just be uh or the word autism could just be um a description of your identity it needn't even be sort of given to you by uh, a clinician it could be you know through self-identification that you hear about the behaviors and you identify with them and you know that kind of approach wants to move autism right outside of any medical framework um and think of it more in terms of you know if someone is gay or left-handed or anything else uh, it's just part of who you are and i have a lot of sympathy with that because autism is partly genetic so it is part of who you are um and it's lifelong you know that's it's how you were born and you'll you that that wiring in your brain that makes you experience the world differently will be with you right across your life uh so there is this tension between if you like the medical model and more of a a social model but my own view is that um i suppose to sort of retain the meaning of autism as um you know a way of accessing the help that you might need for your disability we sh- we should still just use that label for people who are struggling so it's yeah it's with the caveat that you know this is a this is a label which you can choose to use or not and the determining factor is you know the the, the sort of locus of control is with the it's very client-centered because they can say, well, you know, I don't really identify it because these are squarely benefits for me. They're the way that I think, which is cognitively different to the average. And, you know, I don't, it's very maybe environmentally determined, you know, if I'm working very well in the context of some company in Silicon Valley and, you know, that's not an issue. Um, so I think it's like anything. It's, uh, is it, is it deemed as a, as a challenge, um, by the actual client themselves. I mean, I suppose I suppose we're touching on the whole topic of neurodiversity. Uh, we haven't used that word yet, but I think a lot of your listeners will have heard about it. And when I think about autism, um, I do acknowledge and um, actually celebrate the fact that autism is a difference, a cognitive difference or set of differences. So, um, you know, and people who think differently or perceive differently um, often have a lot to contribute in all kinds of ways. 
both at work, uh, at college, um, just as a, 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 a citizen in our community. Uh, but I also see autism as more than just a difference, that it does entail disability. And that's, that's why you get the diagnosis, that um, at some point in your life, you've been struggling. It doesn't mean that uh, all the way through your life you'll be struggling, but at some point in your life, uh, you were finding life so difficult that you took yourself to a clinic or your parents took you to a clinic to get that diagnosis uh, so that you could get extra support. And I think, again, there's a tension. We want to celebrate the differences, but we also don't want to ignore the disabilities. And the disabilities can be social, you know, being able to make sense of the social world, uh, understand other people's intentions, uh, and imagine their different perspectives. That seems to be one area of difficulty in autism. Could be communication, you know, being able to just chat uh, and have a kind of two-way conversation effortlessly. Some autistic people really struggle with that. Uh, it could be much more obvious, like um, language development, where some autistic people have very minimal language and really struggle even with the the basics of speech. Um, and of course, you know, autism is often accompanied by other conditions uh, like uh, learning disability. We've talked a little bit about that, but you can have both autism and learning disability. Um, you can have autism and ADHD. The list goes on. Um, so I think we just have to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking of autism just as a difference. Uh, there are also challenges, and we need to, by acknowledging both, we can also provide the right support. So, uh, Simon, what would be great to get uh, an overview on is, we have used, as you mentioned, the term, you know, neurodiversity. Um, this is a term which I think is generally not very well understood um, by people outside of the, the autism community. Uh, I'd love to just ha have you to help me un unpack this term and then maybe relate it to, um, and then we can move into talking a little bit about the pattern seekers because I think that the sort of systematizing uh, component is, is relevant. So, so the term neurodiversity, how would you define this term and explain that to, to a layperson? Yeah. Um, so, you know, your listeners will be familiar with other kinds of diversity, uh, like biodiversity, when we think of the many different ways that you can be an organism on the planet, uh, different kinds of plants and animals. Um, people will be aware of gender diversity or ethnic diversity and uh, the important um, kind of civil rights uh, battles that have had to be fought to ensure recognition of uh, diversity with gender, with ethnicity. And I think neurodiversity is kind of the newest example in that space. So I would, I would you know, my, my simple way of talking about neurodiversity is just to say that, you know, not all brains are the same, that um, there are many different types of brain in the population. Um, and uh, as you said earlier in our conversation, 
people come with different types of brains, different ways of processing information. Uh, but that doesn't mean that one is better or worse than another. They're just different. Uh, and in my book, maybe this is a kind of a segue, um, I recognize five different types of brains in the world. When you look at um, two particular cognitive um, mechanisms in the brain, the first is empathy, and the second is systemizing. So if you look at uh, the population in terms of how easily someone can empathize with other people, or how easily people can systemize uh, or um, see patterns in the world, uh, some brains uh, lean more towards empathy than systemizing, and I call them type E for empathy. Some people show the reverse profile. They lean more towards patterns in the world, uh, understanding systems and how they work. So I call them type S. Some people are sort of equally good at both empathy and systemizing. Um, and so I call them type B for balanced. And then we also see the extremes, uh, the extremes of type E, people who empathize almost nonstop. They're always worrying about how other people are thinking and what other, what other people are thinking, um, feeling and thinking. But, you know, when it comes to understanding objects and systems, they struggle with those. Uh, and then the opposite is the extreme of type S. So people who systemize nonstop, uh, I call them hyper-systemizers. They're just always looking for patterns and regularities in the world and trying to understand how a system works. But they may struggle with empathy, um, maybe finding even conversation quite difficult or relationships quite difficult. And the link back to autism is we have these five different brain types. Uh, autistic people tend to have a brain of type S, so they, you know, they have a preference for systems over people, if you like, uh, or even extreme type S, hyper-systemizing, where they show uh, a, a talent at spotting details, spotting patterns, taking things apart to understand how something works, um, maybe reassembling it to make it better than it was, which is where we get into the whole link with invention. Because ultimately, invention, the human capacity to invent, uh, is usually about um, making a change to a system uh, which results in it being um, new in some way and hopefully better. So there's you, you, you outlined some really lovely examples of hypersystematizers in your in your book. Uh, I mm. particularly enjoyed hearing about about Jonah. Uh, and then, yeah. and then, f more famously, of course, is I think the pre most preternatural hypersystematizer I've ever heard about, which is Thomas Edison. So I think yeah. it would be great to hear about how how did Jonah's manifest um, in in his life? Yeah, so Jonah was um, a kid who was late to talk, and in the first chapter of my book, I kind of described this child and how the mother, his mother, is really very anxious about the fact that her child isn't talking when everyone else's child is. And she takes him off to a pediatrician who tries to reassure her that actually there is diversity in the population, that not 
all kids talk uh, at the average age, you know, that most kids are talking by or saying their first words by 12 months and perhaps putting together two word phrases by their second birthday. Uh, but, you know, Jonah wasn't speaking at all, even by his second birthday. And it took him till I think three before he said his first words. And the pediatrician is just explaining, you know, some kids are late to talk. They're outside the, uh, the average range. But that doesn't mean that, it doesn't, it doesn't indicate anything about their eventual outcome. It just means they're on a different track. Uh, less about language and maybe more about patterns. And with Jonah, it was very clear that he he loved to collect leaves in the playground to understand all the different patterns of different types of leaves. So he was classifying endlessly. Um, as an adult, just to jump fast forward, you know, he could listen to a car engine and just by listening, he could identify which components in the car engine might need to be tuned up or down to improve the engine. Uh, he loved to go fishing, and he would go out with the fishermen in, in their boats because he could notice the ripples on the waves as a sign, a pattern of where to fish, you know, that there were fish underneath the particular patterns on the waves. Um, so, you know, he had all kinds of skills and different way of seeing the world, but language just wasn't his forte. Mm. So that's one example, and, and he ends up with a diagnosis of autism. Uh, but you can see this mix where he's struggling with socializing, struggling with language, but nevertheless uh, talented at pattern recognition. Mm. The, the, this pattern recognition component... Uh, reading your book helped me to understand, I suppose, working in this applied field that whilst there obviously are these cases of, I don't know if the term is still used, but, you know, a goal-oriented, you know, sort of savant capacity, just this amazing capacity to do things which are then the wider community starts to notice as being, you know, deemed as valuable by them, you know. But your book helped me to understand that the, the sort of substrate independent quality of that, regardless how how valued it is or how how, how much it's being fueled by the, the the skills and capacities of the particular person are using it, is that it's all about the 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 repetition and the the lawfulness of the behaviour, which is then found to be very soothing in a world, especially if it's being you know, the social world, which can seem ambiguous and make very little sense at times. So I have clients who have, you know, aren't going to be producing those sorts of things. You know, they're, they're, they're don't, they have a, an, an intellectual disability, but maybe want to spin something over and over again. So you can see how there's like, whether you're able to understand the concept of pie or you like to spin something because it goes round and round and round. It's ostensibly the same you know, soothing mechanism of lawfulness. Is that, have I got that right in terms of the way that it sort of yeah, splits across? Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. Um, so there's a couple of things that you've mentioned because you've used this word savants, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure your listeners will have come across, but this idea that some people have remarkable talents, uh, but there's a massive discrepancy between 
what they can do, let's say in the in a field like music or drawing or mathematics and any of their other skills. There's a kind of just a massive gap. Uh, they may not be able to live independently, for example, but yet they can produce incredible music. Um, but not all autistic people are like that. It's very important to kind of um, remind ourselves that savants are just a, um, a, a tiny fraction uh, of both of the general population and of autistic people. Um, there seems to be a link between autism and savantism, but we just mustn't lose sight of the fact that many autistic people are not savants, but they still may have this love of repetition, as you said. Sometimes it might be much more concrete, like watching a washing machine going round and round because it's on a cycle, and there's something soothing about hearing the identical series of clicks or watching the identical sequence of movements, watching an electric fan going round and round. But it's that attention to detail um, that seems to sort of be a hallmark and excellent memory for detail. And it may not result in, um, you know, a capacity for invention or um, may not manifest as, you know, uh, an artistic or a mathematical ability. But nevertheless, it's a sign of how the person thinks differently, how they love repetition and patterns and regularities in the world. And I think in the right environment, that can be supported, it can be nurtured, uh, because there are a lot of uh, opportunities for people who are good uh, with attention um, and care about the detail uh, and can can identify um, patterns. This um, driving capacity of invention, like you say, it's not. We yeah, we need to be very careful as well that it's like savants and people with these extraordinary abilities are probably always going to receive a disproportionate amount of of press relative to their numbers in the population. But the the core thesis of your newest book, the Pattern Seekers, I think speaks very clearly to what is actually going on because often people can just see that as some independent skill that that person has innately, but you've sort of fleshed out a central thesis of um, the systematizing mechanism. So I'd love for you to unpack the sort of your your motif of if and then, and how does that, how does that scale up to the concept of invention? Because I don't know if the link is as clear for people to understand. Sure. Um, so, yeah, in my book, The Passion Seekers, um, I propose that the human brain about 100,000 years ago evolved what I call the systemizing mechanism. So um, this is a, a brain circuit which looks for special kinds of patterns in the world. Um, you just mentioned them. Uh, I call them if-and-then patterns. That if you take uh, some uh, something in the world and you perform an operation on it, then you get a particular result. So if and then. It's a kind of logic. Um, and I trace it back to between 70 and 100,000 years ago because of looking at the archaeological record that we see, for example, 75,000 years ago, the first bow and arrow. So a complex tool that's been invented 
And if we put ourselves into the mind of the inventor uh, 75,000 years ago, uh, they would have been reasoning with this if-and-then logic, you know, that if I um, take an arrow and I attach it to a stretchy fiber and release it, then the arrow will fly. So it's this if-and-then pattern seeking, uh, which I argue is the basis of all invention, uh, and that humans, homo sapiens, are are unique in having this capacity to uh, invent generatively. We don't just invent once, we're inventing all the time. So 40,000 years ago, we see the first musical instrument, or at least the earliest one that's been found, which was uh, a flute made from a hollow bone of a bird, but where, again, we can sort of imagine the mind of the inventor, one of our ancestors, who picks up a bone and thinks, if I cover one hole in the bone and I blow, then it makes a particular sound or note. But if I blow down the hollow bone and cover two holes, then it makes another note, a different note. So we've got, you know, an uh, an early uh, member of Homo sapiens inventing, in this case, a system uh, that's a musical instrument uh, and also a system of, of notes that we call music. Mm. Um it's it's yeah. it's gloriously uh, it's very elegant, but it's like you say it's glori- gloriously generative because it, it's sort of like the wish that wishes for more wishes. Because <laughs> you know, I think sometimes when it's when it's read or it can be I don't know sort of caricatured as being oh that's far too simplistic. But there's a difference between something being simple and elegant because it can be added on to. You know, it's if I take this stick and and I put it in this stretchy fiber and fired you know then it becomes an arrow but if you know if i put the stick and i put this it in the stretch arrow and i add feathers to the end of it it flies and it flies more in a more stable fashion and you know and on and on and on it goes and i think is that the difference between something being generative and then something just you know and and the if this then that motif that animals engage in yeah yeah that's that yeah, that's the argument, that, that you can take this algorithm, the if-and-then algorithm, and you can vary the input, so that's varying the if, or you can vary the operation, which is the and, uh, and you get a different output, you get a different then. Um, and they, they could be incremental changes, as you just mentioned, you know, what happens if I add feathers to the arrow, what happens if I change the length of the arrow, or if I make the arrow out of a different material, heavier or lighter, what happens to the the then, you know, the distance that the arrow will travel or the flight path and so forth, which is, of course, uh, you can can hear that this is the basis of modern science, that when we do experiments in science, we take one variable at a time and we we manipulate that that variable to see what, what happens. But clearly this was happening way before modern science. Uh, The archaeological record shows us that. Mm-hmm. It um, the the sort of discussion around the genetic component, I I, f- I find it not particularly controversial because I'm just always thinking if something has 
in the human population, you know, evolution is a conservative mechanism. So if something has been conserved over long periods of time, and whilst it, it confers great advantage, it it's inarguably has creates challenges for the the organism like sleep for example you know confers huge advantages means that we have to be static for long periods of time you know as you alluded to and and there are these incredible advantages uh to to people on uh, people with autism but obviously there are what i think it's fair to call disabilities at times the 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 utility to the village, to the group, to the tribe, the you know tribe, uh, you know not a specific neuro tribe, but the actual global, you know the the tribe itself, the band, is so inarguable in my sense because, like you've alluded to, that, that is what um, I, her name escapes me, but the lady whose the movie was made about who um, who designed a new way for cattle to be slaughtered. All oh, right, uh, yeah, Temple Grandin. Temple Grandin, yeah. and she has a speech where she says, you know. <laughs> The people that invented spears, it wasn't the social yakety yaks around the fire, you know. So the sort of the, the the broad utility of different ways of thinking to us in the past, but I think I think we're nowhere no different now because we have these grand existential challenges ahead of us, and I just don't understand why people find it controversial in any way that there is neurodiversity and it's something to be celebrated. Yeah, um, I agree. I think neurodiversity shouldn't be. Uh, something that um, you can challenge whether it exists because you know it's any more than biodiversity I mean it's it's just a give it's just a given in nature we we can we can uh, reveal neurodiversity either using brain imaging like MRI where you just see that every brain is different uh, uh, or, and you can try and uh, see whether the, whether brains fall into different clusters or different types or you can manifest it, reveal it through psychological testing, for example. Um, uh, and, and we did this in a very large population by giving uh, the empathy quotient, so a questionnaire which looks at how easily you can empathize, and then the systemizing quotient, another questionnaire which asks about how easily you can understand patterns and figure out how things work. And just by using these psychometric measures, um, you know, you see diversity. People, you know, these skills fall on a bell curve, uh, but some people are above average on one and below average on another. So that is diversity. Um, I wanted to mention, because you, you, you brought in genetics, that we had the opportunity to work with um, the personal genomics company 23andMe, which some of your listeners will have heard of, you know, where you can pay money to to find out what genes you're carrying, and um, so the customers of of this company uh, were invited to take the systemizing quotient uh, on the website, as well as to giving a saliva sample, so that uh, the company could look at uh, their DNA, and we were able to work with them to analyze whether the genetic variation that contributes to systemizing, whether, for example, you are average at systemizing or above average, you know, whether the genetic basis to that overlaps with the genetics of autism. And we found there was indeed uh, a significant overlap. So this, you know, and I talk about this in, in my book, The Pattern Seekers, that this, in a, in a way, shows us that uh, part of the genetics of autism 
entails aptitude for understanding systems, that we shouldn't be thinking about autism purely as a disorder or a disease, which was the way it used to be thought about, but instead as this complex mix. There is disability, as as you and I have discussed, but there is also aptitude, um, strengths, uh, can even be talents in understanding patterns, and that these have, have common genetic roots. Yeah, I had the... I had the privilege last year of working at the University of Cambridge closely with the Disability Resource Centre, the DRC, and I thought, right. I thought they did an excellent job of understanding that in the whatever 20,000 strong population of, of yeah, CU students, there's probably a, a higher than average. And I know you've actually done some research to this effect, especially in the STEM fields, that, you know, a disproportionately high number of you know systematizers, and that the, ch- the chances are that there's going to be some areas of challenge, you know, social challenge, whatever the case was, but there was a really beautiful understanding that, you know, it's like you don't need to be, you don't need to have an excellent serve to play the game of tennis. You just need to be able to get the ball into the net. And then if you have great ground strokes, you can, you know, you can you can win a few matches. So there was a sort of strength-based focus, but there wasn't a repudiation of the, the challenges that, that people um, face. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that sort of captures it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you, you were able to work with uh, the, the DRC, the Disability Resource Centre in our university. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of the work that they do in supporting students. Um, and in fact, the largest disability group in amongst our students here is, is autism, uh, which, which I find interesting. And so we've had to design support pathways uh, to, you know, really understand what reasonable adjustments can be made to make sure that students feel supported, uh, aren't struggling to the extent that they drop out of university, which used to happen, uh, so they can fulfill their potential. Um, But I just wanted to pick up on this point you mentioned about STEM, because in our big study, uh, we, we, we looked at a population of 600,000 people um, and gave them these different questionnaires. We included a questionnaire called the Autism Spectrum Quotient, or AQ, which counts how many autistic traits you have. And what we found was that people who work in STEM have a higher number of autistic traits on average compared to people who don't work in STEM So that's telling us, again, that there's a link between aptitude in understanding systems, which of course you need for STEM, uh, and how many autistic traits you have. So again, pointing at a uh, possibly genetic link between these two different sides of of the human mind. Yeah, like and a, a genetic component. Regard, you know, however big or small that is, there's there's definitely a component, and I think the I linked to all these studies as well, Simon. Of course, you know, but the sizes, the power of these studies, uh, is I can imagine in the dawn of the internet is just <laughs> of a scale that you could probably only have dreamed about when you started. You know, back absolutely, in, in, in your days. yeah. No, when when I look back at the at the studies we did back in the eighties and nineties, yeah. they were very small scale. 
Rel- the internet existed, of course, but but um, no. most of the public were not online yet. <laughs> yeah. and, and nowadays, nowadays we can we can access uh, all kinds of populations really to study online. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to also just m- mention this genetic link in in our study of Eindhoven, which is some of your listeners will know it's uh, a, a city in Holland. Some people, some people call it the Silicon Valley of the Netherlands because Eindhoven has had the Philips factory there for over 100 years, attracting people who have an aptitude in STEM. And it's also had an, the Institute of Technology there, uh, a bit like MIT. Again, attracting people who are good uh, at systems thinking. And we looked at the rates of autism in Eindhoven compared to two other Dutch cities, Utrecht and Harlem, uh, matched for different kind of demographics and found that autism rates were more than double in Eindhoven compared to these other Dutch cities. So this again is kind of pointing at the, the likely genetic link between parents who are good at understanding systems and the likelihood of having uh, a child uh, who is autistic. Right, yeah. So again, just different evidence from different different fields now to speak a little bit to that i i did go out and ask for sort of questions from the, the community and it would be great for you to unpack uh where you're at maybe just outlay that the spectrum 10k study and just where, where you're at with that because i don't necessarily share them but i did want to explore i did feel some pushback in certain areas and I'm sure you're aware of that but I think it would be great to hear you speak to the sort of rationale for the study where it's at right now and then if you had the inclination there's a lot of straw manning on you know the television of caricaturing of people's arguments if I could almost invert that like what would be the is there anything that's come up a sort of a steel man argument that that has given you pause for thought you know like right just to hear from your perspective like what yeah. what, what is your thoughts on that Yeah. So uh, the Spectrum 10K study, um, as it sounds, what we aimed to do was was to collect DNA from 10,000 autistic people. Uh, And we launched it last summer. uh, And we used uh, all kinds of of media to launch it because we needed uh, a big sample, 10,000 people to take part. So we use television, we use newspapers and so forth. Um, and it was funded by the Wellcome Trust, who are um, a biomedical research charity. Um, and it really was the, the aim of the study was to identify uh, the, the genetic causes of autism and the genetic links to chronic health conditions that are more common in autistic people, like epilepsy, for example. Um, and in the first few days after launching the study, we had thousands of people sign up to our website who wanted to take part and could recognize the value of studying genetics in autism. But it was also apparent within uh, a week that there, there was a lot of pushback, as you say. Um, so, you know, on social media, particularly on Twitter, but also a petition to stop the study... Uh, launched by autistic people, or some. Um, and we we decided to pause the study because of this quite mixed reaction. 
um, in order to really listen. And uh, so what we've done is not just pause the study, but uh, begin a much larger consultation with the autism community. Uh, you know, what are their worries? What are their fears about where autism genetics research might lead? And certainly what I've picked up is the idea that if you start collecting DNA from autistic people, whose hands is it going to end up in? Could it end up in the hands of people who want to develop a prenatal test for autism, as we've seen in, um, you know, is, it exists for Down syndrome, for example? You know, could this be used to prevent autistic people? Could it be used effectively for eugenics? And we've been very clear that that's not the aims of our study. Uh, and I'm very open in my opposition to any form of eugenics. Uh, we're not trying to develop a prenatal test for autism. We just want to understand the basic science, scientific causes of the condition, but also the links with health conditions. But I think it's very, you know, we're going to need to take time. We think it could take a whole year to really do a very broad consultation with the autism community to see how we can uh, reassure them, but also, um, you know, build in safeguards so that the data could never be misused. Yeah, well, I think I, I really appreciate, you know, hearing someone of your sort of stature take time to make that consultation or listen because I, I, I feel sort of I've done a little bit of research and as, a, as someone working directly with the people with autism you know I think the subcategorizing and, and the capacity to have more granular information about how to diagnose if it's used correctly could be useful because sometimes you feel it's quite low resolution and you know as long and I find the individual variations are so much bigger than any between groups and I think I have an understanding that just because there are groups or subcategories it doesn't it's not um dehumanizing people or putting them in categories you know like we've spoken about with diagnosis but on the other side of that i think listening to those responses to because of this as we've alluded to this i believe extraordinary utility of the neurodiversity to help solve complicated problems <laughs> we're going to need that type of prevalence, I believe, in our in our society to, to solve problems like um, and just because something starts out well and with that particular intention, it's, it's you know, the, the founders of Twitter, you know, the quote I have from them is, you know, they, they thought it was going to be a short burst of inconsequential information. And, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, it's it's in the hands of, um, you know, presidents who might seek to, you know, destabilize the entire globe so it's just, you know we can't know jack dorsey can't be held accountable for predicting where it would go but to put those checks and balances in place is um i think i think i think that's wise um well i just wanted to, to uh there's one term that's come up which which i think would be useful for listeners to delineate between is and you've written about this and then i'd love to to get your thoughts on it you know empathy that is such a such a misunderstood term i believe the, the delineation that you make between cognitive and affective empathy. So I wonder, could you speak a little bit to that? Because I don't know if that's particularly well understood in the general population either. Sure. Uh, we talked a little bit about systemizing earlier, but the other big 
um, sort of revolution in the human brain, I call it a cognitive revolution, was the evolution of the empathy circuit. Um, and again, we can trace this back to about 70 to 100,000 years ago. Um, uh, for example, looking at the archaeological record, we see the first jewellery. And you can imagine that the inventor of the first necklace was thinking about what other people might see or think um, about them wearing this jewellery. You know, so that is one of the sort of core aspects of empathy, uh, being able to imagine the thoughts and feelings of another person. And that is what we call cognitive empathy. And it's distinct from the other part of empathy, affective empathy, which is having an appropriate emotion in response to someone else's thoughts and feelings. So knowing, for example, that you are in pain should trigger an emotion in me of wanting to alleviate your distress uh, or offer sympathy or uh, respond appropriately in that way. Um, and what we've found in our research is that autistic people struggle with the first type of empathy, with the cognitive empathy. So being able to read other people's facial expressions or being able to read between the lines to imagine what they might be thinking or, or, or meaning. But they don't struggle with affective empathy, that once it's pointed out to them that somebody else is suffering, for example, it upsets them just like the rest of us, you know, they want to do something about it uh, to help the other person. Um, and in a way, uh, you know, so that first of all, you know, the, 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 the notion that autistic people lack empathy is just not true. They, they, they have difficulties with cognitive empathy. It's also sometimes called theory of mind, being able to imagine the thoughts and feelings of another person. But they don't lack affective empathy if anything they they have it in abundance you know they're often uh people who want to stand up and defend others uh, stand up for injustice against others um, or become whistleblowers in organizations when they see that other people are being badly treated um and maybe the other point to make is that their their profile is almost the mirror opposite of psychopaths. So if we think about the psychopath, they have excellent cognitive empathy. They know exactly what their victim is thinking or feeling, but they don't seem to care, which is how they can go on to hurt people. Autistic people struggle to sort of know what people are thinking, but they don't tend to hurt others. Um, you know, uh, they don't want to hurt others. And, you know, if anything, they, they may avoid other people because they find the social world confusing and, and complex. Um, but, uh, you know, the, when, we, when, we, when we meet autistic people who, for example, uh, you know, take in stray dogs uh, and, or wounded animals to look after them, you know, these, these are kind of all signs that their empathy, their affective empathy is very high. Yeah, it's the it's that I've heard it described as the psychopaths know, but don't care. And some people with autism might not know, but they do care. You know, it's the exact yeah. inverse. And so, um, it's, yeah. it's so, it's so common that you hear stories like that, where when it was explicitly made explicit, 
the autistic boy then all of a sudden was you know celebrated everybody's birthday in the class or something it just wasn't going to intuit that you know that it was somebody's birthday because they were whistling happy birthday you know that um and i think that's really important for families in the general community to know especially um in the light of of sometimes that you know i just i've, I've actually i've heard it like you say it, it's still out there and you'll hear parents and I think I believe them saying that the, the GP said to them oh well I'll never be very empathetic and they know different but that rankles you know when they hear that from a health professional it, it sort of has an echo of um, a stigmatizing from someone in a white coat so I think the sooner that we can help that get out there into the general populace uh, the, the more uh, and, and just the very little overlap there is when you hear people's trip reports if they're on the, you know people with autism they will often describe of how they you know i've heard sort of trip reports where it's like i felt like my love was trapped behind a glass wall and then for a short period of time that glass wall was ameliorated and i was able to demonstrate it in the social world and the people around them will say you know exactly that so there's i mean i want to delve into that in, in much more detail and subsequent uh, episodes, but um, I would love to keep you abreast of the research or whatever sort of weird and wonderful bits I find because um, I've just heard too many anecdotes. To to to, there's bound to be some signal where I'm sure there's a lot of noise. Yeah, I mean, obviously you're you know you're the expert in psychedelics, and I I really am not. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we were approached um, by a company in London linked to Imperial College to conduct a trial of uh, psilocybin or magic mushrooms just because of the many anecdotes that autistic people may be sort of self-medicating in a way uh, with with these, just to see if they are um, bringing any benefit. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, the academic partner is going to be, I think, King's College London. And, you know, as with any of these uh, trials... What we need is evidence, um, best uh, obtained through the, the the method of a randomised control trial. Um, so when you talk about trip reports, I guess that's what you're referring to. Different kinds of, you know, different kinds of um, use of uh, of drugs, um, and you know, carefully managed. Um, I think we, you know, we just need to make sure that the evidence is there, that it's safe, and that it's beneficial. Yeah, and I, I'm not being in any, this is just the honest truth, I'm not being sort of false modesty, I'm neither an expert in autism nor psychedelics, but I suppose one little area of exposure is that I'm, I'm learning all the time is things being autism aware, and I think the psychedelic community, the way I'm going to get into this more deeply in subsequent episodes, but there are subtle but important changes and tweaks that I think will need to be made to the paradigm, and there are some great advocates who are people with autism but who are also interested in psychedelics and, and their um, field report, their field notes are very interesting and have some homogenous themes about well, you know, well let's our set and setting might need to be environmentally different <laughs> to neurotypical people and that uh, this is another area where we need to be careful that there isn't a sort of Pareto distribution of attention to, to what you know the modal person is going to want things to be how, how they want their psychedelic experience to be contextualized i think there's important so that's, i'm i'm really delighted to hear that you've been i'm not surprised that you've been contacted so there's obviously a groundswell of anecdotal 
evidence and people joining the dots in the way that I hope that, that I am doing. Um, I am very conscious of your time and I am very appreciative of your time and your and your work. Simon, if, if people were wanting to find out maybe just more about autism, maybe their family member or themselves who's been newly diagnosed, um, I'll deal a bit more with the overlap in the future. But if the people just want to d- dive deeper into this topic, obviously your book, The Pattern Seekers, but are, is there any other resources you would you would point to the sort of interested listener? Um, so first of all, if people are seeking a diagnosis, you know, one f- first step, is to go to their family physician, or in the UK we call it a GP. I don't know, in different countries they have different labels, I guess. But just to sort of get a referral, um, I often encourage people to also go to the charities because they often have information about where to find uh, a clinic. So in the UK we have the National Autistic Society, but there are equivalents in many countries. Uh, And in terms of reading... um, well, um, there are lots of books coming out now about autism, and that's really good. You know, the awareness is much higher than it used to be. Uh, there are particularly books about autism in girls and, and women, which I think are worth looking up. I'm not going to recommend a specific title, but just because of uh, the myth that autism, uh, you know, is, is a male condition, um, you know, it, autism is diagnosed more often in, in boys and men, but it certainly exists in females and is sometimes overlooked or, or misdiagnosed. So I think very important for, for your listeners to be kind of going onto the internet, doing some research and talking to their family doctor. Yeah, absolutely. And I will um, link to, I'll go look, seek out to the community and if there's any resources that I think are particularly good I might run them past you <laughs> to see if they can get your approval because like any area especially with which is going through a sort of hockey stick growth in, in exposure and activism there's there's often a lot of resources but it's it's helping curate to point people in the right direction I think is very important um, well listen Simon I just wanted to say thank you so much and uh, if you're open to it I would love to have you on in the future maybe down the track and we can get an update on Spectrum 10k and then maybe there will be news to report of you um, <laughs> I would I would very much like to hear you telling me about uh, your findings from a, a psilocybin study but I mean I'm obviously biased but I think that it would be an incredibly fruitful field and one that would need people of your stature to, to oversee just, just to clarify so that's not a study that we're going to be involved in but it's because it's going to be led by king's college london as i understand uh joint with uh imperial college but uh you know i you know i was mentioning it just as an example of how we do need carefully controlled trials to evaluate safety as well as uh benefits absolutely there's a lot of um yeah there's a lot of risks, and there's a, but there's a lot of rewards as well. So I just think we need to go through yeah. the proper scientific channels. Well, thank you exactly. so, so much for your time and uh, take care. And I'd thank you. to have you on again. <laughs>